0: Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 85, where we go back to the, back past, to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear year of publishing. You can find us every Sunday morning on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and shot straight from the hip, partner.
1: Mm-hmm. Because uh, this time we are actually going back to the past That's right We're going <laughs> to be discussing Weird Western Tales number 12 It's covered dated July 1972 with a cover by Joe Cubitt uh, We got several stories here The first one's going to be Promise to a Princess Written by John Albano with art by Tony DiZuniga
0: That's followed by A Time to Die Written by Carrie Bates Penciled by Neil Adams Inked by Bernie Wrightson
1: Hmm. then we got Brothers, written by Sergio Aragonis and Denny O'Neill, with art by Nick Cardi.
0: And then The Treasure of the Flaming Arrows, written by Ed Heron, art by Carmen Infantino. The whole book was edited by Joe Orlando and Mark Hannerfeld. And the cover tells us this is 52 big pages. Don't take less. Only 25 cents.
1: Mm-hmm. All Take right, the comics
0: That's right, you loser comics So uh, just a little bit of preamble here We wanted to do this comic because this is sort of a blind spot For both Chris and myself, western comics Yes uh, mm-hmm. Of course we know we're aware of them And we've talked a little bit about them on the show But could never claim to have sat down or read a stack of them And I still haven't sat down to read a stack of them But true. Uh, through, <laughs> through this show we hope to get more familiar with them Because they were a huge genre Uh, in comics and in America for the 50s and part of the 60s. So this is our first foray into exploring Western comics, and then we will just dispense with that and go right into the action.
1: Indeed, we're going to start with our creators We're going to uh, first talk about John F. Albano Who was born September 12, 1922 He was a friend of Joe Orlando's uh, From somewhere, sometime <laughs> Before working in comics yeah. uh, Now John's most famous co-creation was Jonah Hex Who was crafted with a mind to bring quote Spaghetti westerns into comics And we will talk more about Jonah Hex's origins A little bit later on Now John was the writer of books ranging from adventure comics To House of Mystery to even Archie uh, uh, Albano wrote novel adaptations of comic book stories and wrote for Archie Comics until about 2003. He'd won the Shazam Award for Best Writer in the Humor Division in 1971, won another Shazam Award for Best Individual Short Story, the Dramatic, uh, dramatic Short Story, in 1972, and that was for The Demon Within. That appeared in House of Mystery number 201, cover dated April 1972, with Jim Aparo. Uh, he would pass away May 23, 2005, in Orlando, Florida.
0: And then over on the art details, we have Tony Dizoniga, born November 8, 1932, in Manila, Philippines. Dizoniga began his comics career at the age of 16 as a letterer for Liwayway, 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 a Filipino <laughs> weekly comics magazine. Uh, Tony received received a bachelor of science degree in commercial art from the University of Santo Tomas in the Philippines. At Joe Orlando's request, DiZuniga came to New York City in the late 1960s and began working for DC Comics. His first job was inking pencil art by Rick Estrada on a romance comics tale for Girls Love Stories number 153, that was August 1970 cover date, and DiZuniga's U.S. debut as a penciler came with the self-inked horror story for House of Mystery 188, September-October 1970 cover date. Besides co-creating Jonah Hex with John Albano, Tony co created Black Orchid with Sheldon Mayer.
1: Hmm. Now, Dizoniga was the introduction to what would be the uh, 1970s wave of Filipino artists working on American comics. Now, among the artists found there who would soon become mainstays of both DC and Marvel were Alfredo Acala, Alex Nino, Nesta Redondo, and Gary Talowak. Uh, Tony Dizoniga relocated back to New York from the Philippines in 1977 and continued to work regularly for Marvel and DC for 18 years. Upon retirement, he began to do commission paintings and uh, also teach art. He'd to Jonah Hex with Jonah Hex No Way Back in 2010, written by Justin Gray and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti. He would pass away May 11, 2012 in Las Pinas, Philippines, of complications related to a stroke.
0: But had an interesting life. And also... Uh... We didn't mention that uh, these are very compressed bios we're doing here. We have a lot of people to sure. cover, and some of them <laughs> loom very large in comics, so these will not be the fullest biographies we could possibly give for each person, but uh, little some details to put some context on it. So Sorry. the uh, first story in the book, and the only one we're going to expand with our beautiful vocal talents, is <clears> Promise <throat> to a Princess. <laughs> one morning at the Half Moon Saloon in the town of... Uh, Uh, Some town name We don't know (laughs) what it is Jonah X is tucking into a breakfast of of Medium rare steak and it looks like nothing else At all just like peas (laughs) Maybe Maybe. something on the bottom there Uh, He's approached by two surly Looking cowboys with pistols drawn
1: Yeah one named Jed goes Eat it in good health Mr. Ugly
2: Cause a man who's about to die Deserves a good last Meal
0: now it's probably a good time to mention that Jonah Hex's defining characteristics are his Confederate soldier's Civil War uniform and a scar on the right side of his face, which makes his eyeball bulge and cause a connective flap of skin to grow beneath between his lips.
1: Look. Yeah. Uh, frankly, there are worse names to leap the mind than Mr. Ugly
0: in this yeah. case. Uh, really, this is the old west here. Uh, the, <laughs> next to Jed, a blue shirted fellow says, Let's blast him quick, Jed! You know how tricky they say he is!
1: In a flash, Jonah Hex pulls two pistols and shoots these hoods from under the table with twin, with twin, but <laughs> <laughs> His hands were obscured by his own logo on the title page. Not long after, the wealthiest man in town—a fellow by the name of Mister. Craig—he holds an outdoor meeting about the Jonah Hex situation. Now we can tell that he's wealthy because he's got a top hat and a watch on a chain.
0: Oh yes, he's got a, then a long coat and a three-piece suit. He's definitely the rich fella. He says mm-hmm. that gun crazy Jonah Hex ain't in town no longer than an hour, and already he's started murdering people.
1: Uh, you think we might get the name of this town
0: eventually? Are we going to let him get away with it?
1: A fella in a purple shirt goes, Mr. Craig is right. We don't have any marshal, so it's up to us to get that uncivilized savage.
0: Right, and there's a red-shirted fella holding a rope there who says, I got the rope. Let's go, man.
1: Mr. Craig gathers quite a group that heads over to the Half Moon Saloon, and they arrive single file which is, you know, pretty pretty orderly for an unruly, riled-up mob, right? Yeah,
0: I'm pretty impressed with them. One yeah, orderly Size member, order. Exactly, Bobby. That, <laughs> that's the uh, touch of Mr. Craig right there. <laughs> yes. uh, one orderly member of the rabble says, <laughs> Well, I'll be thanked. Look at him in there. I eat this dinner as calm and cool as a frog sitting on a leaf in the shade.
1: His breakfast was disrupted by that double murder, so uh, we guess Hex just hung around until dinner time.
0: Yeah, you should have seen him earlier. He was as hot and fired up as a frog in a frying pan.
1: (laughs) Now, one of the mindless mob hooligans goes, And him just after killing
0: two men. Mr. Craig says, What are you waiting for? There are over 20 of us, and he's in there all alone. Just
1: then, a gunman hollers.
0: Hey, look over there!
1: Riding up the pack is a horse with a man slumped in the saddle. An arrow protrudes from his back, so uh, we're going to assume that he's uh, quite dead.
0: Yeah, this is definitely from from the looks of things. Uh, A guy wearing a short (laughs) duster says, It's Joe Higgins!
1: a guy in a yellow shirt goes, Somebody get Doc Harrow! But minutes later...
0: Doc Harrow shows up and says, Too late for me to help this man, boys. You should have said for the Undertaker. Though, if you wait a couple of days, you can call for the sanitation department. Probably.
2: uh, One fellow who looks quite a bit like Jerry Garcia (laughs) goes, Those blasted red savages are starting up again, man. Mr.
0: Craig says, We'll take care of them rotten engines just as soon as we finish with the gunfighter.
2: The bartender goes, Jonah just ran out of town, Mr. Craig.
0: What? You let that venomous barbarian escape?
2: Why didn't you call out to us, man? I'm a bartender, gentlemen, not the town
1: crier.
0: Uh, the bartender goes on to explain that the two guys Jonah Hex shot happened to be the bounty he was in the process of hunting. And besides, they you know, they pulled their guns first. It's true. Uh, Mr. Craig says, The important thing is we're rid of him. Now we can concentrate on doing something about those filthy savages.
1: We jump to the following day, many miles from the nameless town, as Jonah bathes in a mountain stream. He's bathing shirtless in a a mountain stream. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, from the off panel, a uh, child's voice.
0: Paleface cannot wash evil from body with water.
1: It's just the most adorable little Native American girl in white moccasins and a white suede skirt. Jonah Hex goes,
0: huh, little squaw? What? This little squaw has Jonah's gun trained right on him.
1: And she tosses him his clothes.
0: You will dress quickly, for I, little fawn, make you my prisoner. aren't
1: oh, you just the sweetest little kidnapping sociopath I ever seen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jonah Hex ends up, stands up to little fawn, but she reveals her pet wolf, Iron Jaws, who from the uh, looks of this paddle suffered a stroke recently. <laughs> right? What happened to half his face? But uh, still, plenty dangerous, I'm sure. We don't want to mess with him. Uh, Little Fawn rides Jonah Hex's horse, which, by the way, is named General, and trains his pistol on him in a, forge, in a forced march. While marching, she explains that she she was picking berries and got lost, so along with taking Hex prisoner of the village, they've also got to find the village. So that's uh, sure. two things going on. Eventually, they come to a very thin and rickety rope bridge crossing a high span.
2: Yeah, Jonah goes, Hey. You ain't figuring on us crossing this rickety old bridge, are you? Bridge out us easy. Go. You're a loco female. This wood's so rotted it'll never go.
1: Begrudgingly, Jonah Hex steps onto the bridge ahead of Little Fawn and General. And but once they uh they're all on the bridge, it breaks with a snap, crash. In the commotion, Little Fawn fires Jonah's gun with a bam, and Jonah is winged in the shoulder.
0: Yeah, little fawn, Iron Jaws, and Jonah Hex in general tumble into a narrow river below. The horse and the wolf get out okay in their own, but Jonah Hex saves little fawn.
1: Uh, because there's no way this young survivalist would ever know how to swim, right?
0: Yeah, she's a crack shot and she rides a horse, but swimming it's a, that's out for her. She couldn't possibly uh-huh. do it. Uh, she's in there drowning going Little <laughs> fawn <fall> back. <clears throat> Let me Wound Pal face with fire stick.
2: Uh, shut your miserable mouth, you dang female buzzard!
0: Is this what homeschooling's like? I think so, right?
2: <laughs> basically, I think so. Uh,
0: Joda makes it to the riverbank with little Fawn in tow. He thinks. He says, Whew, Now look at her, passed out on me. Gotta leave her right there." But no, he grabs little Fawn and hops up on his horse. Only reason I ain't the desert sun probably got me a little touched in the head. I mean, if you know your tetch in the head, usually you would, you know, do something up anyway. Uh sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jonah rides with little fawn, Iron Jaws following loyally behind until nightfall. Then he's spied by a band of Indians atop a cliff.
1: One of them draws a bow? But then...
0: Yeah, bald guy except for a ponytail says, wait, pale face not alone. Is that not daughter of Chief Hoy Holds in Arms?
1: Wh- who's Chief Holds in Arms? Oh oh, 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 okay. He, he. You mean he is holding in his arms? Right.
0: Okay. <laughs> now <laughs> I get it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, now, days later, Jonah Hex wakes up inside of a Native longhouse.
0: Little Fawn standing right nearby. Yes. Jonah goes, huh? Where? Brave pan Face awakens after many
2: suns. Look, Squaw baby, my name is Mister Hex. So quit calling me Pale Face. Now get yourself out of here while it gets dressed.
0: A little fun, Lee's, while Jonah Hex is pulling on his pants. But he was undercovers before, folks. This is a family comic book. Don't worry.
1: Yeah, we just wholesale murder only. No, no, no risque sense,
0: no. stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, no Hex uh, privates. Uh, now, later, he is greeted by the chief who's wearing a pretty awesome headdress uh, made from a buffalo
0: head. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's just like he's, his head's coming out of the buffalo's mouth. It's like awesome yep. <laughs> as hell.
1: It's a good wrestling gimmick, too.
0: Chief says, uh, Chief, not forget you saved daughter's life, Mr. Hanks. Now it best you leave, quickly leave Indian Village.
2: Guess I'm as welcome here as I am everywhere else, huh? All right, Chief. I'm a, hey, what's
0: that? Jonah Hex notices that there are more than a dozen dead bodies laid out, each covered in a brightly patterned cloth. Are those bodies under the blankets? Bodies of body warriors do not die in battle, but from tricker of evil pale named Craig.
1: The chief explains that Mr. Craig traded with blankets, uh, specifically treated with smallpox, in order to reduce the number of people in his tribe. Now, he, how he was able to extract smallpox specifically and use it for chemical warfare in the 19th century Old West, we haven't the Not farthest. Sure. Sure i <laughs> Now, though the uh, small pack, smallpox vaccine existed since 1796, the first Russian child to receive the shot was named Vaxenov by Catherine the Great and educated at the Crown's expense.
0: I love that Vassanov. That, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I thought he had that, like, that name his whole life. It's incredible. Uh, the chief points out that Mr. Craig and some men have encircled the high cliffs surrounding the camp, waiting for the time to wipe them out. Jonah goes, "Why is that
2: hypocritical buzzard?" All the time preaching about ridding the West of uncivilized killers. And now he's just up there, just sitting and waiting
0: with his band of stinking ghouls. Face wait for party tribe to grow weak and fuel from disease. Then attack shall begin.
1: Chief explains that other tribes in the region have pledged to avenge this cowardly attack. Just then, Little Fawn faints. Looks like she's got the pox.
0: Little Fawn! father. How can it be? The disease cannot strike the the daughter of a chief.
1: This is why you shouldn't hold your children back from sex ed class, right? (laughs)
0: They get all kinds of crazy ideas without telling. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I was wearing my moccasins, I swear.
0: Exactly.
1: Uh, (laughs) The chief says this uh, this is why he should leave the village immediately. But Jonah says he's been vaccinated against cowpox. Not sure that's the same thing
0: I, uh, I know, but okay
1: <laughs> I'm not sure
0: that's a thing, at period Any old box uh, will do I
1: guess. <laughs> sure Now uh, Hex hops on General and says he's going to find a doctor Who can treat the village But first he's got to get through Mr. Craig's line Of armed men
0: Huh? Will Craig's warriors not stop you?
2: Reckon they will try
1: Only I don't think Any of those
2: farmers up there Have ever had their baptism afar. And I got a hunch
0: they ain't going to be particularly partial to it. Then Hex begins riding right towards Craig's men. Yeah, a so Hoodlum in an all-blue outfit goes,
2: Clem, look! An engine coming this way!
0: Clem observes through an old-timey spyglass and says,
2: <laughs> Yeah, hey! There ain't no engine! That's J- Joe the Hex! <laughs>
1: Then a guy in pink shirt and purple pants whose voice I forgot how, how I did it earlier goes, we better pass the word along to Mr. Craig or get some more men over here in a hurry.
0: And the caption tells us what ensues. It says, but before the line can be reinforced, a burst of charging men and horse flesh descends upon the untrained vigilantes, shouting and cursing to unnerve his startled adversaries. Jonah Hex's blazing guns fill the air with the acrid smell of burning powder.
1: Jonah Hex tears through this line of men Like it was tissue paper We jump ahead hours later And Jonah arrives at the doctor's house Only to find his wife
0: She says, I'm sorry But my husband left for Winston Mills this morning There's a man over there he had to operate on So Jonah
1: beats his horse senseless Riding as fast as he can to Winston Mills However, when he arrives
0: A farmer there in a pink shirt says Doc performed a surgery My brother went out for Green Valley Mister." He's got a patient over there, ho I heard, partner. I heard. I'll get me a fresh horse, and you can rest until I come back for you, General. It's almost morning by the time Jonah reaches Green Valley where he finds the doctor.
1: Jonah explains the situation, but the doctor's prognosis is grim.
0: Well ain't much I can do for someone who's already contracted the disease, mister Hex, but I'll give you some medication that'll ease the discomfort and bring down the temperature.
2: Anything that'll help, Doc, but
0: hurry. Hex grabs the medicine from the doctor and gallops off, gallops off and Doc Carroll calls after him. Plenty of rest and cool fluids will help, too. Right, right. Little, little phone's plenty tough. Sh- she'll make it, all right. Sure, there's no reason to feel pessimistic about the situation at all.
1: Not everything's going to be <laughs> A-OK. Uh, <laughs> and to prove that, Jonah Hex rides his weary horse back to the Pawnee Indian camp. And to his horror finds...
0: Jonah's stomach slowly sickens as he surveys the gruesome scene of unbelievable carnage. Another sharp denial of man's claim that he has risen above the level of primates. Another example of the depths to which the animal known as man can sink.
1: But didn't the story begin with Jonah Hex shooting and killing two people inside of a saloon during broad daylight?
0: Yeah, no, that was a bounty, Chris. That was fine. Oh, If if it's a bounty, there's no problem.
1: Perfectly uh, on
0: the level. (laughs) Right. Uh, The entire village is slaughtered. Uh, Their corpses litter the ground. Yes, even Little Fawn is riddled with bullets. Fawn!
2: Little Fawn!
0: Jonah Hex cradles her little body. I didn't even spare you. And then the Iron Jaws trots over, so I guess they made a trained wolf over a Native American girl. That's sort uh, sure of messed up.
2: <laughs> I'll take care of Iron Jaws for you. I promise.
0: And Jonah creates a grave of stones for Little Fawn.
2: I'll make you another promise, Princess. The man that was responsible for this.
0: And Jonah Hex shakes his fist at the sky in a half-page panel and furiously cries, We'll pay. By God, he'll pay. Later, Jonah Hex rides into that nearby town that was never named. I mean, you know, the other towns have names, right? Green Valley, mm-hmm. Winston Mills. Why why is this town, this phony, the town that's fake anyway, unnamed? I don't understand. I, I,
1: I guess we can call
0: this place Jerk Town. That man. would make sense. It's it is full yeah. of jerks in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Jonah Hex solicits an old man for information. You there, skunk.
2: I'll give you just two seconds to tell me where I'll find that butcher Craig.
0: And so this old guy that Jonah called Skunk says, What brick house? Down the street, Mr. Hex. H- How come you ain't caught it? Everybody else in town. Got oh, smallpox? Uh, I guess they didn't get the vaccination. Then. <laughs> uh The old man pleads with Jonah to get the doctor, but Jonah has other plans. He later at Mr. Craig's bedside. Mr. Craig is dying of that pox. You too, huh, Craig? Well, reckon I just can't do it.
2: Reckon I'm gonna have to give you this medicine that'll make you well after all.
0: Mr. Hex, anything. I'll give you anything. Please don't let me die. And then Jonah produces a pink bottle. Guess I'm not as uncivilized as I thought I was. You're a gentleman, merciful and forgiving.
1: Mr. Craig lifts the bottle to his mouth. However, before he can sip anything, Jonah Hex shoots
0: right through the glass. Ooh, that's cold. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. that's a sick prank. Uh, minutes after that, Jonah Hex, Iron Jaws, and General have assembled in the middle of jerkdown. <laughs> Let's go, boy. You two, Iron Jaws. Our business is finished in this town. The end. And, as we will find out later... Uh, Iron Jaws did become a regular member of uh, his uh, of the troop. The troop, right there. This is uh, mm-hmm. we're, I guess the origin of Iron Jaws here.
1: Yes, we're we're collecting party members. <laughs>
0: That's right. But uh, <laughs> let's go ahead right to that next story.
1: Yes. First, we're going to talk about the creative team. Uh, we'll start with uh, the writer Carrie Bates, born in 1948 in Pennsylvania. Began submitting ideas for comic book covers to DC Comics when he was 13 years old, and a number of them were bought and published. The first of those was uh, the cover of Superman number 167, February 1974 cover, and it was drawn by Kurt Swan. Bates began to sell stories to DC when he was 17. Uh, Bates began working for DC Comics in 1963 and is best known for his work on such titles as Action Comics, Captain Atom, Flash, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, and Superman. Uh, Infantino returned to The Flash uh, To jump across the table With uh, issue number 296 is April 1981 And he and Bates collaborated onto the series Until its cancellation with issue number 350, this was October 1985 uh, Bates became the editor As well as the writer of The Flash title During his time and oversaw it until Its cancellation And yes, he wrote and oversaw The trial
0: of The Flash Yeah, I mean he's, he's often equated With being the Pre-crisis Flash guy, yeah, uh, very Pretty much, so. just, he was on it for just a long time during that whole trial of the Flash. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, Bates's final Superman stories were trapped in IMP TV in Superman number four twenty-one, drawn by Kurt Swan, and Superman for a Day in Action Comics number five eighty-one, drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger. Both cover dated July nineteen eighty-six. I wonder 1980- what happened after that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think <laughs> he was fine. It just went on normally. Yeah. Uh, in 1987 and 1988, he wrote sub-stories for Marvel Comics' new universe line and created the Video Jack series at Epic Comics with Keith Giffen. Carey was head scriptwriter writer on 1988-1992 live-action Superboy television series. In 2008, he returned after a 20-year absence to Marvel and wrote True Believers, drawn by Paul Goulassy, uh a limited series about a team trying to uncover secrets in the Marvel Universe. And he made a return to writing Superman in an Elseworlds story titled Superman, The Last Family of Krypton, which was published in August 2010. Yes, we got the
1: artist Neil Adams born. Uh, and again, these are short. Yes. <laughs> these, are, these are brief because uh, Mr. Adams could have a much longer time.
0: And, and even shortened, we have quite a bit to say about him. But we do. <laughs> now, he was born June 15,
1: 1941, on Governor's Island in New York City. Uh, he was the son of a naval officer, and he spent some of his childhood in Germany. He attended the School of Industrial Art High School in Manhattan and graduated in 1959. Post-graduation, Neil attempted to find work in comics, landing some inking work at Archie. Uh, Not finding enough work, however, Neil Adams went to work in advertising. Uh, They specialized in uh, comic book style advertising. Uh, Neil Adams drew the Ben Casey comic strip Based after a fairly popular television show at the time Uh, His first daily strip Which carried an Adam's signature Appeared November 26, 1962 And the final strip Appeared Sunday, July 31, 1966
0: Neil Adams' story is very long and interesting and definitely worth its own episode, but the hits of it are... And there's a lot of hits, boy. There are. Uh, Neil returned to DC, made his DC debut as Penciler Inker of the eight-and-a-half-page story It's My Turn to Die, written by Howard Liss in Our Army at War, number 182. That was July 1967 cover date. After working on several DC Comics titles like The Adventures of Jerry Lewis and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane... The first instance of Adams drawing Batman was an interior story, uh, in an interior story was the Superman Batman Revenge SQUADS in World's Finest Comics number 175. That was a May 1968 cover date. Adams succeeded co-creator artist uh, Carmen Infantino in drawing Deadman with the 17-page story "An Eye for an Eye" in Strange Adventures number 206, November 1967 cover date, and I think that's when he really. Uh, His uh, star started to take off Sure Adams went on to draw both the covers and stories For issues 207 to 216 That was December 67 to February 69 cover dates And took over the scripting With 212 June 1968 While continuing to freelance for DC Adams in 1969 also began Freelancing for Marvel Comics There he teamed with Roy Thomas on X-Men Which back then was on the verge of Cancellation and starting with issue number 56, May 1969 cover, Adams' uh, pencils, colored, and, according to Thomas, did most of the plotting, including the entire plot for issue number 65.
1: Adams had his first collaboration on Batman with writer Dennis O'Neill. Uh, now, the duo, under the director uh, direction of editor Julia Schwartz, would revitalize the character from its campy take during the Bill Dozier-produced produ- Batman TV show that was 1966 through 68. Uh, now, their first stories were... The Secret of the Waiting Graves in Detective Comics number 395 that was cover dated January of 1970 and Paint a Picture of Peril that was in Detective Comics 397 March 1970 with a short Batman backup strip written by Mike Friedrich and drawn by Neil coming in between that was Batman number 219 February 1970 Uh, Together Adams and O'Neill also revamped Green Arrow Adams updated Green Arrow's visual appearance by designing a new costume and giving him a distinctive goatee beard for the Character, and that, that appeared in The Brave and the Bold number 85. This is the August September 1969 issue. Uh, they rechristened Green Lantern Volume 2 as Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That was in issue number 76, April 1970. And O'Neill and Adams teamed these two superheroes up in a long story arc in which the characters undertook a social commentary journey up across America. Now, this story, would, this series would end with issue number 89. This was May 1972 cover.
0: Yeah, 13 issues, right? So it's not mm-hmm. better. But am I doing the math right? Yes, 13. Okay. <laughs> uh, the last complete story that Adams drew at D.C. before opening his own company, which was called Continuity Associates, was the oversized Superman versus Muhammad Ali in 1978, which Adams has called a personal favorite. He was a fierce defender of creators' rights, and Neil Adams helped form the Comics Creators' Guild in 1978, which over three dozen comic book writers and artists joined. Neil Adams spent much of the 1980s and 1990s doing independent projects for Continuity Associates, which was, less like where he started out, an advertising company uh, that specialized in comic book-style work. In 2005, Adams returned to Marvel to draw an eight-page story for the giant-size X-Men number 3. In 2010, Adams returned to DC Comics as a writer and artist on the miniseries Batman Odyssey, and he continues to write and draw miniseries as well as do occasional work for Marvel to this day. Neil lives in New York with his wife Marilyn, and they have three adult sons, at least one of which who works in comics also. Hmm. Uh, Then Bernie Wrightson, also known as Bernard Albert Wrightson. I would say he'd be the inker here, but it's it's large enough that I feel like we had to mention him. Uh, Born October 27th, 1948 in Dundalk, Maryland. He received training in in art from watching John Gnagy on television. Gnagy? John Nagy, I'm going to say. As well as through a correspondence course from the famous artist school. And John Nagy was a self-taught artist best remembered for being America's original television art instructor hosting You Are an Artist on NBC.
1: Now in 1966, Wrightson began working for the Baltimore Sun newspaper as an illustrator. The following year, after meeting artist Frank Frazetta at a comic book convention, he was inspired to produce his own stories. In 1968, he showed his art to DC comics editor Dick Giordano and was given a freelance assignment. Wrightson began as spelling his name Bernie, B-E-R-N-I, in his professional work to distinguish himself from an Olympic diver named Bernie Wrightson with an E. Uh, he would later restore the final E to his own name. Uh, in 1968, he drew his first professional comic book story. This was The Man Who Murdered Himself, and it appeared in House of Mystery number 179. This is the March-April 1969 issue. Uh, he continued to work on a variety of mystery and anthology titles for both DC and, a few years later, its principal rival Marvel Comics, on titles such as Chamber of Darkness and Tower of Shadows. Along with writer Len Wein, Wrightson and co-created the Muck Creature Swamp Thing. That was House of Secrets number 92 July, Line 1971 cover date. Uh, Swamp Thing would become a long-running series, spawning several volumes. In uh, summer 1972, he published Bad Time Stories, a horror science fiction comics anthology, which featured his own scripts and artwork. This was from the period of 1970 through 1971. They covered Uh, now. In January 1974, he would leave D.C. to work at Warren Publishing. Uh, for those black-and-white horror comics magazines, he uh, produced a, a series of original work, as well as short story adaptations.
0: Yeah, and besides Swamp Thing, a lot of people know him best, I think, from that Warren work. It always, sure. always pops up, and, uh, and a couple of things we'll mention right now, going on hmm. t- continuing in his life. Uh, he joined a coalition of like-minded artists in 1975, and he'd largely es- eschew commercial work after that. At this time, he started producing artwork for numerous posters, prints, calendars, even a highly detailed coloring book. He also drew sporadic comic stories and single illustrations for National Lampoon magazine from 1973 to 1983. Bernie spent seven years drawing approximately 50 detailed pen and ink illustrations to accompany an edition of Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. That came out... In, I don't know what of the year here, but 78 or something like that. It's Probably, yeah. pretty crazy. In 1983, Bernie Wrightson illustrated the comic book adaptation of the Stephen King-penned horror film Creepshow. This uh, led to a long series of collaborations with Stephen King over the years. During production on the 1984 film Ghostbusters, Wrightson was among the artists hired by the associate producer to provide concept art. Bernie continued to work for DC, Marvel, and independent publishers throughout the 1980s and 1990s, and then he announced in January, 19, in January 2017 that he was retiring from comics due to a battle with cancer. He died not long after that, March 18th, 2017, in Austin, Texas.
1: Now, all those uh, creators we just uh, went through wrote an El, or produced an El Diablo story. Oh. <laughs> a, a time to die. <laughs> Uh, Now, we open this story with Lazarus Lane, a.k.a. El Diablo. Uh, He first appeared in All-Star Western No. 2, October 1970, by Robert Kaniger and Gray Morrow. Uh, Now, Lane was originally a bank teller who was nearly killed by a gang of thieves and falls into a coma after being struck by lightning. Uh, After being revived by Native American shaman, uh, shaman Wise Owl, Lane becomes the vigilante El Diablo. And he sort of looks like Zorro, but uh, the mask is uh, red and blue.
0: Yeah, we could even go so far as to say sort of a Zorro ripoff, right? Maybe a little bit. Maybe so. (laughs) In this story, El Diablo finds a young native separated from his grandfather during a sandstorm. El Diablo is prepared to take him back to his village, but the boy convinces him to take him to a nearby cave where the boy is sure that his grandfather has sheltered. Inside the cave, they find the boy grandfather's dead body And a canteen with a stencil from the U.S. Army
1: Or as the boy puts it White Eyes Army Uh, Sure (laughs) Then behind him a White Eyes appears With his gun drawn he admits to killing the boy's grandfather and even laments at not getting anything of value from the act. Uh, now, seems the man deserted his post in the army and killed two guards in order to do so. So, uh, really, he's got no compunction about opening fire on a child. Nope. Uh, now, the boy runs outside the cave and to El Diablo, who is waiting there. The army deserter is prepared to kill them both. El Diablo raises his gun in a flash, but a throwing knife flies from the cave and stabs the white guy in the back.
0: Isn't El Diablo white? No, no, the, the, well, the, other, the other white guy, the, the army deserter. Oh, right, right, okay, yes, yeah, the white eyes, sure. Yeah. Uh, to make matters even creepier, the throwing knife came from Grandpa's personal stash. Quite a mystery there. Hmm. El Diablo tells the boy that his grandfather has been dead for days. He's a vigilante, not a social worker, people. He's not there for a bedside manner for this little boy. So (laughs) a little bit of a horror story, huh? Did the ghost of this kid's grandfather save the day? We don't know. But now the creative team of the next story. It starts with Sergio Aragones Dominic, born September 6, 1937 in St. Mateo, Castello, Spain. Castello, Spain. Sure. But Sergio emigrated with his family to France due to the Spanish Civil War before settling in Mexico at age six. He made his first professional sale in 1954, when a high school classmate submitted his work to a magazine without telling Aragones. He continued to sell gag cartoons to magazines while studying architecture at the University of Mexico. According to Aragones, he arrived in New York in 1962 with nothing but $20 and a portfolio of his drawings. After working odd jobs around the city, Aragones went to Mad Magazine's offices, on Madison Avenue, opening to sell some of his cartoons. MAD editor Al Feldstein and publisher Bill Gaines liked what they saw, and Aragonas became a contributor to the magazine in 1963. With the publication of the 500th issue in 2009, Aragonis' work had appeared in 424 issues of MAD, second only to MAD Foldenaut painter Al Jaffe, who has been in 451 issues.
1: In 1967, he began writing and illustrating full stories for various DC Comics titles, which would include The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, Angel and the Ape, Inferior Five, Young Romance, and for various horror anthologies. Aragonas helped uh, create DC's Western series Batlash, 1968, and the humor title Plop in 1973. Aragonas broke with DC when the company began insisting on work-for-hire contracts. When Aragonis balked, uh, an editor tore up Aragonas paycheck right in front of his face. Wow. Yeah, that's cold-haunted Sure Now, Aragonis <laughs> had created the humorous barbarian comic book Gru the Wanderer with Mark Vanier in the late 1970s But the character did not appear in print until 1982 That was in Destroyer Duck No. 1, May 1982 cover uh, The title was initially published by Pacific Comics uh, Briefly by Eclipse Comics And then eventually Marvel Comics under the Epic Comics imprint And this imprint, uh, of course, allowed creators to retain copyright uh, Then it went on to Image Comics And it's currently Coming out through Dark Horse
0: Comics. Yeah, that might be one to cover. It's been, been really through The Ringer, that character. Uh, sure has. I used to read that as a kid all the time. I loved it. Hmm. Uh, now, Dennis J. O'Neill, who I guess I would have to say, I, I think what happened here was Aragornis did the plot and I'm guessing, Dennis did the right? scripting. It doesn't really break it down that way. They're both like kind of listed as co writers, but I'm, I'm yeah. thinking that's what happened here. Uh, He was born May 3, 1939, in St. Louis, Missouri, graduated from St. Louis University around the turn of the 1960s, with a degree centered on English literature, creative writing, and philosophy. Uh, From there, he joined the U.S. Navy just in time to participate in the blockade of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. After leaving the Navy, O'Neill moved on to a job with a newspaper in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And this attracted the attention of Missouri native Roy Thomas, who invited Dennis to New York. Roy, of course, at that time was managing editor of uh, Marvel Comics, or whatever the title was they gave him. I don't know. He was reading, something like that, yeah. kind of running the show a little bit over there. When Marvel's expansion made it impossible for Stan Lee to continue writing the company's entire line of books, Lee passed on as much on to Roy Thomas as he could. But they still needed writers, so Neil took the reins for a short-term run of Doctor Strange stories in Strange Tales, pending six issues. He also wrote dialogue for such titles as Rawhide Kid and Millie the Model, as well as scripting the final 13 pages of Daredevil number 18 over a plot by Lee when Stan went on vacation.
1: In 1968, Dick Giordano was offered an editorial position at DC Comics, and he would take a number of Charlton Comics freelancers with him, including Denny O'Neill. O'Neill scripted several issues of Beware the Creeper, a series starring a new hero, The Creeper, who was created by artist Steve Ditko. Uh, From there, DC moved O'Neill over to Wonder Woman and to Justice League of America. He famously depowered Wonder Woman and made her a kung fu fighter, a misstep even by his own recollection. Uh, He and artist Dick Dillon made several changes to the membership of the JLA by removing founding members like the Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman. As mentioned, Denny, along with uh, Neil Adams, retooled characters Batman and Green Arrow. Denny would return to Marvel in 1980, joining the editorial staff and working on such titles as Daredevil, Alpha Flight, Power Man and Iron Fist, GI Joe: A Real American Hero, and Moon Knight. Uh, he then later he'd go back to DC Comics to become the lead editor for the Batman group. And this is a job that he held during the during the salad days of the 90s. Yeah, uh, during the uh, Nightfall storyline, and uh, I'm sure that was a very very good time to be. On no, the no
0: man's books. land. Also, there are a bunch of them mm-hmm. there, but you know, he, he's do want to know who's the night who, who organized that Nightfall thing? That was him.
1: <laughs> yes, and he also wrote, I think, every single issue of the uh, the hundred-issue Azrael series. I, wow! Uh, All right. After that too. All right. um, now O'Neill spent several years in the late 1990s teaching a writing for comics course, and this was at Manhattan School of Visual Arts. And he still lives in New York, and he's married with to his wife uh, to his to his wife to his wife, Mary Fran.
0: Yeah, you got her name right, at least. That's uh, the easiest one. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, now, Nick Cardi, a.k.a. Nicholas Vis- Viscardi, or Vicardi, I don't know, Vic Viscardi, we're going to say. He was born October 20th, 1920, in New York City. He attended the Art Students League of New York, studying life drawing, and Cardi entered the comics field working for Eisner and Iger, an early comics book packager, around 1940. He worked on fight comics, jungle comics, conga comics and Wings for Fiction House publications through that packager. He did World War II military service from 1943 to 1945, earning two Purple Hearts for wounds suffered as a tank driver in the the armored cavalry. And he began his Army career with the 66th Infantry Division, during which time he won a competition to design its patch, created a snarling Black Panther logo. And we don't mean Black Panther, but an actual Panther that was black.
1: Yes uh, In 1948 Cardi began his Decades-long association With DC Comics Starting with the Comic book Gangbusters This is uh, issue number 6 October-November 1948 Cover date uh, From 1962 Through 68 He drew the first 39 issues of Aquaman And all of its covers Through the final issue Ran 56 issues Ending in April 1971 Cover uh, Cardi first drew The Teen Titans In the Brave and the Bold Number 60 This is July 1965 Cover date And uh, the team Was spun off Into their own series with Teen Titans Number one in February 1966 Cover and from 66 Through 73 Cardi penciled or Inked sometimes both all 43 issues of the series Uh, Yeah that's a heck of a run Now uh, Cardi Became the uh, primary DC cover Artist from uh, the early to mid 1970s and uh, would leave the comics industry in the mid seventies for the more lucrative field of commercial art. Uh, he would pass away due to a congestive heart failure on November third, nineteen I'm sorry, two thousand thirteen in Florida.
0: Yeah, not too long ago, but it seems like he had a nice long, uh, long run out there. Yeah. Now, the, all those creators work together for a story, believe it or not. We're not just rattling off bios in this episode. Yes. We're still talking about West, Weird Western Tales, number 12 here, folks. And the this, this story here is colloquially called Brothers. However, on the opening page, it appears to be titled Batlash Worth 2,000, hey, Part 2, right? Wouldn't you say? <laughs> uh, it's actually continued from All Star Western, Volume 2, Number 11. May 1972, by the same creative team, they just renamed the series as this. Mm. This, well, that's what this was called. Weird Western Tales, number 12, is the first issue of Weird Western Tales. Before this, it was All Star Western, volume two. And this story itself is actually reprinted from Batlash, number seven, November 1969, where it ran as one story running throughout the issue. So that's why there's no title on part two. It was in the first half of the book of the story. Anyway, Bartholomew Bat Aloysius Lash debuted in Showcase number 76, August 1968 cover. This issue was written by Sheldon Mayer, though Carbon Infantino claims to have essentially rewritten it, uh, but the character was created by Carmen Infantino and Joe Orlando, later embellished by Sergio Aragones. Denny O'Neil would dialogue over Aragones' plots, and Nick Carty would provide art for the Bat Lash series, lasting seven issues. Bat is sort of a rambling ladies' man, a professed pacifist that uses his silver tongue to get out of scrapes. Oh, and uh, copious gunfire also. The, for any pacifist, it usually the, works. It, we the usually packages work. uh, a... <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, uh, the scene here is that Batlash's younger brother, Tom, has grown up to become a bounty hunter. And he's looking to collect the bounty on. Lash. Uh, that's the thing that's uh, quote worth two thousand, eh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> somehow he's unaware that they're siblings, despite having the you know same
0: last name and uh,
1: looking almost identical. I
0: mean, no, ridiculously, they could they could practically be twins, except for they the could be style, twins, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, meanwhile, up the street, Bat Lash and his Mexican buddy Don Pasquale are drinking at the cantina, and by drinking at the cantina, we mean getting into a shootout with some <laughs> local thugs. Uh, Pasquale and Batlash chase them off just in time for Tom Bash, Tom Lash, to arrive. And and again, he looks just like Batlash, Bat but his hair is just a bit bushier.
0: He asks Bat to come quietly, but Bat refuses, so there's nothing else for it. There's gonna be a showdown in the middle of town. Mm-hmm. The two brothers square off, but Pasquale, who knows their relation, can't stand to see bros about to shoot each other, so he <laughs> jumps right in the middle as they open fire, wounding himself fatally. Heck of a guy I know I feel like there could have been a better way to explain this Like, no, you're brothers, but anyway (laughs) uh, Then the thugs from earlier show up again And Bat and Tom Lash work together To murder all of them Uh, At the end, Tom cannot forgive Bat For his crimes, but he does let him walk away With Pasquale's corpse Bat Lash buries Pasquale under a pile of stones And a makeshift cross Then rides away into the foggy night
1: You know, I think I've been using the word Pacifist wrong all these years
0: yeah, I think I think by old west standards, this would be considered pacifist <laughs> because he, he, he didn't. Not everyone got a gut shot. That, that's how you know someone's True. really mad they at you. Is that they bleed yeah. out like that. <laughs>
1: Well, that wraps up our Batlash tale. We're gonna jump to the next story, but first, we're gonna meet some of the uh, creative team here. We got France Edward Heron, born July twenty third, nineteen seventeen, in Ohio. Uh, he would grow up in West Virginia, though. Uh, Heron got his start in comics while he was a teenager with the, the with the Harry H. Chesler uh, Packaging Studio. That was nineteen thirty seven. He wrote and edited for uh, such Centaur Comics titles as Star Comics and Star Ranger Funnies. In 1939, Heron joined Fox Feature Syndicate, and that's where he first met Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. In 1940 through 41, Simon and Kirby hired Heron to uh, write stories for their new creation, Captain America, for Timely Comics.
0: Mm, I wonder if that Uh, went anywhere. It might have. It might (laughs) have.
1: Now, uh, Heron joined Fawcett Comics in 1940, eventually becoming the company's executive editor by 1942. Uh, Same year, 1942, he joined the U.S. Army, and he wrote for the uh, military newspaper Stars and Stripes during his tour of duty. Uh, While working at the paper, he met Kurt Swan, who would become uh, the definitive Superman artist of the pre-crisis era.
0: Heron began writing for DC Comics in 1945, initially on Green Arrow stories and Adventure Comics and World's Finest Comics. Heron was Green Arrow's lead writer throughout the 1950s, staying with the character until 1963. He wrote for many DC Comics titles during this time, including Challengers of the Unknown, Detective Comics, Western Comics, House of Mystery, Mystery in Space, Strange Adventures, Tales of the Unexpected, All American Men of War, Our Army at War, Our Fighting Forces, and Star Spangled War Stories. He was almost a, a, lot of, a lot of comics as a, as diverse a portfolio as Arnold Drake. It sounds like you know like <laughs> whatever they had, he wrote. That's it. In nineteen sixty six, Heron moved from moved to Harvey Comics, hired by his old associate Joe Simon, and during that year, Heron was the lead writer for the publisher's short lived Harvey Thriller superhero line. But he died that year, September nineteen sixty six. Cross the table for this one Carmine Michael Infantino We were just talking about him before Now we'll expand on that a little bit Born May 24th 1925 In Brooklyn, New York Born via midwife in his family's apartment even That's how old school he was Old school Yeah. Uh, Carmine attended the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan And of course this one was what would become School of Art and Design, and we already mentioned a few people went there from uh, today's (laughs) biographies. While still in high school, Carmine would do some work for the same prolific comic book packager, Harry A. Chesler. In 1942, he would ink Jack Frost stories for Timely, later known as Marvel, over Frank Giacola's pencils. In 1947, he would arrive at DC Comics, and his first story was a Johnny Thunder six-page story in Flash number 86. That was August 47. Cover date where Black Canary makes her first appearance
1: in 19 in 1956 he was tasked with the gig that uh, most of us know him for reimagining the Flash for the next age of superheroes, and so the Barry Allen Flash would make his first appearance in Showcase number four, his October 1956 cover date, and uh, you can sort of hear our sort of kind of long form chat on Julius Schwartz and his uh, push for the Silver Age in weird comics history, the fifth one in the archives, that's before we were numbering them
0: properly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now
1: in 1964 Infantino. Was Shifted to the Bat books, his take on Batman is referred to as the New Look era, and is cited for the as the direct inspiration for the Adam West series. We talked about O'Neill and Adams taking them out of that era, and yep. Infantino brought them into. you want
0: to put him in there, yeah. <laughs> now, by
1: 1971, Infantino was a uh, he was promoted several times in DC to keep him there, and he became the publisher of DC Comics. Uh, he would remain in that role until 1976. He was uh, replaced by Jeanette Kahn, and at that that point he returned to freelance work In 1981 as we mentioned He returned to The Flash And he like Carrie Bates Would remain on through the trial of Barry Allen And all the way to the end of that volume yep. uh, Now after a short stint On the Batman syndicated newspaper strip He would teach at the School of Visual Arts Until retirement He passed away April 4th 2013 At his home in Manhattan
0: Right and uh, you know Again we could do a whole episode on the man. We're just giving, sure. giving you the, the quick hits that we can while we're dealing with all these stories. So this is the final story in the issue. This is Pow Wow Smith, Indian lawman in The Treasure of the Flaming Arrows. <laughs> this story is actually a reprint from Western Comics number 58. That was August 56 cover date, where it was actually the cover story of that issue. oh yes, a Wow Smith first appeared in Detective Comics number 151. That was September 1949 cover when the title still had a Western backup story by Don Cameron and Car- Carmen Infantino. Powwow Smith would remain a regular feature in Detective Comics for four years, before headlining Western Comics first appearing in issue number 43, that was January-February 1954 cover, until its end in 1961. A story of him is that Ohayessa left his native Red Deer Valley to learn more about the white man's world. His tracking and expert gun skills won him employment as a deputy sheriff, and eventually, the job of Sheriff of Elkhorn. He prefers to be addressed by his proper name, Ohayesa. But the White Citizen did retake to calling him Pow Wow so stubbornly that he eventually gives up and accepts the nickname among them. So there's that.
1: Yes. Now, like a lot of Golden Age comics, the climax of the story is shown on its, on the splash page. Uh, it gives away everything. Yep. Now, uh, we see Pow Wow Smith inside of a cave, firing a flaming arrow at a bunch of powder kegs. Some nearby natives look... Pretty alarmed and uh, ready to, fr- ready sure. to flee, yeah. as as you might imagine. Uh, Pow Wow is on the trail of the Native American criminal Laughing Crow. Laughing Crow evades him, so Pow Wow asks some Indians if they've uh, seen any strangers passing through. Ojaiasa is told that they haven't, but instead they tell him a story for no particular reason.
0: That's just what they do. You know, you come, you come to hang out. You're going to hear a couple of stories. You become family. You know. That's how it works. Uh, so. <laughs> The story goes, a beloved chief named Brightstar left the tribe with a treasure to be used if they ever had a bad year hunting. But they never have, so the treasure remains undisturbed in like a lockbox on a bit of rocky ground. <laughs> Just then, two natives from the tribe show up holding, hauling an elderly disheveled man. He shows a beaded belt that signifies he is a descendant of Chief Bright Star, and therefore, he is the rightful heir of this treasure. As proof, the old man points out that only a member of Bright Star's bloodline can even handle the treasure. A couple of Indians try to touch it, but as they approach, flaming arrows shoot out of holes in the ground. When the elderly man approaches, though, no arrows are expelled.
1: After the old man is split with the treasure, Pow Wow examines his beaded belt and finds it fraudulent.
0: For some reason. Like, you have to. A trained eye is what you need on that one. Yes.
1: (laughs) Now, figuring that the fix is in, Pow Wow Smith follows the elderly man's tracks to a cave hidden by a boulder just outside the village. This cave leads underground and to the holes that surround the uh, treasure box uh, before the elderly dude took it, that is. Right, right. Now, Ohayasa Smith searches deeper into the cave and finds the elderly man with a gang of Indian hoodlums. The old man is actually Laughing Crow in disguise. What? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Now, after making some off-panel preparations, Powwow Smith confronts Laughing Crow and his gang, reenacting the scene that we saw on the very title page of this feature. Uh, The gang runs out of the cave in fear and right into... Uh, they are <laughs> captured by local law enforcement who, ter- who uh, turned Chief Bright Star's treasure box back over to its rightful owners. Turns out that Pow Wow emptied the gunpowder barrel prior to firing a flaming arrow into it.
0: What a prank. But uh, he, right. does, he does say barrel as in singular. Has anyone made sure the fire is out? There were like two or three other <laughs> barrels right next to it. Right there. You know, it's like, thank goodness he's a crack that could shot. Spread. Yeah, yeah that's, not, that's not perfectly safe, pal. But uh, all right. I think it's all's well that ends well And that does conclude uh, Weird Western Tales number 12 One of our uh, very early Our first foray on the show Into a western yes. comic and I would say Definitely one of the very few I've ever read To, to uh, cover to cover Absolutely uh, We're going to take a little break right here And when we come back we're going to talk more about Jonah Hex and The Wild Wild West
2: Get three coffins ready. Uh, huh? Listen, stranger, did you get the idea? We don't like to see bad boys like you in town. Go get your mule. <laughs> you let him get away from you? <laughs> you see, that's what I want to talk to you about. He's feeling, feeling real bad. Huh? My mule. You see, he got all riled up when you went and fired those shots at his feet. <laughs> hey, you making some kind of joke? Mm, no. You see, I understand you men were just playing around, but the mule, he just doesn't get it. Of course, if you were to all apologize... (laughs) I
0: don't think it's nice, you
2: laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it.
0: We are back to talk about the uh, titular character In the first story of this book, Jonah Hex Full name Jonah Woodson Hex First appeared in a full-page house ad For All-Star Western Volume 1, Number 10 In November 1971 Which was published in various November-December 1971 Dated DC Comics Including a few of DC's War Comics line As well as a half-page version Of the same house ad in Batman 237 his first full story appearance was published a few weeks later in volume two of All-Star Western vo- number 10, February, March 1972, which was renamed Weird Western Tales with its twelfth with its 12th issue, which we just read that issue of. And uh, mm-hmm. full, full disclosure, I had thought for some reason this was his first appearance, but when I started to get into it, I had the book, started laying out the script, I found out it was his second appearance, so we ran with it. Uh, So there, that's really all there is to be said about it Uh, Jonah X headlined Weird Western Tales right up until issue 38 At which point Scalpunter took over the spotlight while Jonah X moved on to his own self-titled series in 1977 That series lasted for 92 issues with Michael Fleischer as the main writer And Tony DiZuniga providing much of the art in a 2010 interview with Filipino journalist Anna Valmero, Di Zuniga described the moment he first conceived the image that would become Jonah Hex. He said, When I went to see my doctor, I saw this beautiful chart of the human anatomy. I saw the anatomy of the figure was split in half, straight from head to toe. Half of his skeleton was there, half of uh, half his nerves and muscles. That's where I got the idea it wouldn't be too bad if this distortion would be half.
1: Now, Jonah was raised by an alcoholic father, Woodson Hex, and uh, Jonah was regularly beaten as a child. His father eventually stopped supporting him and would actually sell him into slavery with an Apache tribe when uh, Jonah was 13. This was
0: 1851. Not a a great dad. Uh, Not a a wonderful dad, I would say, yeah. (laughs)
1: Now, the Apaches would work him constantly until one day when he saved their chieftain from a puma, and so he was welcomed as a full-fledged member of the tribe. The chief took Jonah in as his own son, but his adopted brother, Notanti, grew jealous. So he betrayed his brother during their manhood rite at the age of 16 and left Jonah for dead with their enemies, the Kiowa. Uh, He was rescued by a cavalry uh, patrol Although although they they shot him in the gut When he tried to stop their slaughter of Native Americans And so he was left for dead A second time He'd be nursed back to health by an old trapper In the woods Uh, Returning to his tribe's camp He found them long since gone
0: Then as Jordan grew into adulthood He joined the United States Army as a cavalry scout when the war erupted between the northern states and southern states, Jonah shifted his loyalties to the newly formed Confederate States Army and earned a commission as lieutenant in the 4th C.S. Cavalry. However, uh, over time, Hex could not reconcile his loyalties to the Confederate Army and the practice of slavery, so he gave himself up to the Union Army and inadvertently led them back to his camp. Eventually returning to his village in 1866, Jonah found that Notante had since, or his tribe, had since married someone that they'd both courted. He declared Notante's betrayal to the chieftain, but the accusations were denied and it was decided they would deliberate through trial by combat. Notante sabotaged Jonah's tomahawk, forcing him to cheat and end the fight with his knife. For breaking the rules of combat and killing his son, the chieftain declared that Jonah would be branded with the mark of the demon and exiled under penalty of death. And that's how he got that scar on his face. Hmm. Jonah became a bounty hunter, acquired a wolf named Iron Jaws in the story we just read. Uh, Loved, lost, spoke homespun truths in the Old West.
1: Uh, he'd be involved in Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985, when he was summoned, along with several other heroes, to fight for the Monitor and dismantle one of the Anti-Monitor's uh, structures, those big yeah. tuning fork, fork antennas. Yeah. Yes. Now, Jonah Hex fought against the Shadow Demons alongside Batlash, Cyborg, Firebrand, John Stewart, Johnny Thunder, Nighthawk, Simon, and Scalp Hunter. Post. <laughs> that's a, a modern a crew,
0: crew there, yeah, really. Yes.
1: Now post crisis Jonah Hex disappeared in a flash of light one night at a saloon in 1875. He was abducted from his own era and transported into a post-apocalyptic Seattle, Washington in the far flung 21st century. <laughs> the year 2050 to be precise. So uh, we got some we got
0: some we got stuff. A few coming. years to go, yeah.
1: <laughs> now Jonah escaped his captor and he met a motorcycle gang called the Road Reapers. And from there, he'd fight robots, aliens, he'd fire laser guns, and all that good sci-fi stuff. That series ran 18 issues from 1985 through 1987, and eventually, he makes it back to the 19th century.
0: Jordan continued to act as a bounty hunter until the age of 66 in 1904, when he was married to a Native American woman named Tallbird. Playing cards in a Cheyenne saloon, X was murdered by bank robber George Barrow's double-barreled shotgun. While fumbling to put on his spectacles, Tall Bird and Wheeler attempted to give Jonah a proper Native American burial, but they were robbed at gunpoint. Jonah Hex's corpse was stolen to be stuffed and shown at *Wild West Review*, and his final resting place was as a dummy at a Westworld theme park.
1: Yeah, and he actually finds that in the uh, yep. in the last issue of the Hex series. That's right. He
0: actually sees his own uh, his own his uh, own dummy. That's crazy. <laughs>
1: Now, in the New 52, uh, in the revived All-Star Western, Jonah Hex bumped shoulders with Amadeus Arkham and other ancestors of characters in the DC Universe. Later in that volume, Jonah time-traveled into the present again, and he got plastic surgery to fix his face, for some reason. Uh, Now, by the end of that volume, his face is once again scarred, and he winds up going back to his own time. Uh, Now, Jonah Hex appeared as the central character in many series, and we're going to list a few right now. We've got All-Star Western, Volume 2 in 1972, We Had Weston Tales from 72 through 77, the first volume of Jonah Hex from 77 through 85.
0: And again, in the futuristic Hex, that was 85 through 87. He was in Jonah Hex, Two-Gun Mojo, 1993, Jonah Hex, Riders of the Worm and Such, 1995, Jonah Hex, Shadows West, 1999.
1: Jonah Hex Volume 2, 2005 through 2011. Jonah Hex, The No Way Back One Shot, June 2010. And All Star Western Volume 3, from 2011 through 2014.
0: Yeah, so I doubt we've seen the last of him forever, but probably not. It will take a, uh, we'll see what happens with that. So, (laughs) the Old West, Chris. What is the Old West? You know, when we think about it, we think of basically what you see in this. Jonah Hex, you know, like Texas, Arizona, Dusty Plains, right? Yep. Sidle up to the saloon, uh, you know, get shot in the face, that kind of thing. But, of <laughs> course, there are a lot, of, lot more to it, a lot of factors contributing to the Old West, and we just wanted to kind of set a stage for what the Old West really was and, and the things that contributed to create the world that uh, characters like Jonah Hex live within. So, the American frontier, or the Old West, if you like, comprises the geography, history, folklore, and cultural expression of life in the forward wave of American expansion It began with English colonial settlements in the early 17th century and ended with the admission of the last mainland territories as states in 1912 Largely typified by American conflicts with Native Americans, though there was more to it, as we will show Historian, uh, loosely used term, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, in his Frontier Thesis, 1893, theorized that the frontier was a process that transformed Europeans into new people, the Americans, whose values focused on equality, democracy, and optimism, as well as individualism, self-reliance, and even violence. And th- this book we're talking about also is considered to be, like, the beginning of romanticizing the Old West. Uh, thus... Turner's frontier thesis proclaimed the westward frontier to be the defining process of American history.
1: Uh, another historian, Mark Wyman identified multiple frontiers over three centuries. The Native American frontier, the French frontier, the English frontier, the uh, fur, fra- bleh, fur f- trade frontier, <laughs> the mining frontier, and the logging frontier. Finally, says Wyman, the coming of the railroad brought an end to Of the frontier. Uh, Now, the American frontier began when Jamestown, Virginia was settled by the English in the year 1607. In the earliest days of European settlement of the Atlantic coast down to about 1680, the frontier was essentially any part of the interior of the continent. This beyond the fringe of exi- existing settlements along the Atlantic coast, with occasional movements north into Maine and Vermont, south into Florida, and east from California into Nevada. Uh, Turner favored the Census Bureau definition of the, quote, frontier line as a settlement density of two people per square mile, and the west was the recently settled area near that boundary. Thus, parts of the Midwest and the South, though no longer considered Western, have a frontier heritage along with the modern Western states. The Spanish and French established colonies along the interior of America, but they were more likely to stay put for longer and not jump further West like the British.
0: Yeah, so, you know, uh, when Andrew Greeley, Horace Greeley, in the early 19th century said, go West, young man, he was talking about Ohio. Right, he's talking about Michigan. He wasn't talking about California and like the West Coast. Like the West was anywhere outside of you know your basic uh, gaslight jurisdiction. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, and then here's an example of a fellow doing just that in in 1775. Daniel Boone blazed the trail for the Transylvania Company from Virginia through the Cumberland Gap into central Kentucky. It was later lengthened to reach the Falls uh, of the Ohio at Louisville. It was known as the Wilderness Road, and the Wilderness Road was steep and rough, it could only be traversed on foot or horseback. But it was the best route for thousands of settlers moving into Kentucky. In some areas, they had to, they did have to face Indian attacks. In 1784, alone, Indians killed over a hundred travelers on the Wilderness Road. So the first forays out there. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, the first major movement west of the Appalachian Mountains originated in Pennsylvania, Virginia and North Carolina as soon as the Revolutionary War ended in 1781. Pioneers housed themselves in rough lean-tos or, at most, a run-room log cabin. And the main food supply at first came from hunting deer, turkeys, and other game, and their clothing was made from animal skins.
1: The Louisiana Purchase was the acquisition of the Louisiana Territory. It's 828,000 square miles by the United States from France in the year 1803. The U.S. under President Thomas uh, Jefferson paid fifty million francs—that's eleven million two hundred fifty thousand American—and a uh, cancellation of debts worth eighteen million francs, uh, which is three million seven hundred fifty thousand American, for a total of sixty-eight million francs, or fifteen million dollars, equivalent to around three hundred
0: million today. Which would still be a big steal for that much uh, property. Exactly right. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Now uh, the territory contained. Land uh, That forms Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska Uh, The portion of Minnesota west of the Mississippi River A large portion of North Dakota A large portion of South Dakota The northeastern section of New Mexico The northern portion of Texas The area of uh, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado East of the Continental Divide Louisiana west of the Mississippi River Plus New Orleans And small portions of land within the present Canadian provinces Of Alberta and Saskatchewan Wow That's a lot of land (laughs) Uh, The Lewis and Clark Expedition from uh, May 1804 Through September uh, 1806 Also known as the uh, Corps of Discovery Expedition Expedition, Was the first American Expedition to cross what is now the western Portion of the United States, covering Some of the territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase, Uh, so named because It was headed by Captain Meriwether Lewis And his close friend, Second Lieutenant William Clark, and we get into Way more of this in uh, Cosmic Treadmill episode number 41 In which we read Image Comics Manifest Destiny number 1 It's available for you in the archives Now sticking with Manifest Destiny That is or was the belief that the United States was preordained to expand From the Atlantic coast to the Pacific Coast. The concept was Expressed during colonial times but the term Was coined in the 1840s by a Popular magazine which editorialized The fulfillment of our Manifest Destiny to overspread the continent allotted by Providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions.
0: Right. So you see how the thinking is now turning towards... It's not just a matter of... It's
1: fate and preordained. Exactly,
0: (laughs) yeah. This is is something... Exactly, this is their destiny to do this. This is not... This is a burden. The white man's burden is to go out and civilize the rest of the country. So this is... Really the thinking going forward from uh, the 19th, throughout the whole 19th century, and we'll see it here evidenced in the War of 1812, which marked the final confrontation between major Indian forces trying to stop the advance with British aid. The British war goal included the creation of an independent Indian state under British auspices in the Midwest. American frontier militiamen under General Andrew Jackson defeated the Creek Indians and opened the Southwest while militia under Governor William Henry Harrison defeated the Indian-British alliance at the Battle of Thames in Canada in 1813. To end the War of 1812, American diplomats then negotiated the Treaty of Ghent, signed in 1815 with Britain. They rejected the British plan to set up an Indian state in U.S. territory south of the Great Lakes. They explained the American policy toward acquisition of American lands. Thusly, the United States, while intending never to acquire lands from the Indians otherwise than peaceably, and with their free consent, are fully determined in that manner progressively and in proportion as their growing population may require to reclaim from the state of nature and to bring into cultivation every portion of the territory contained within their acknowledged boundaries. In thus providing for the support of millions of civilized beings, they will not violate any dictate of justice or of humanity. They will not only give To the few thousand savages scattered over their territory An ample equivalent for any right they may surrender But will always leave them in possession of lands More than they can cultivate And more than adequate to their subsistence, Comfort and enjoyment by cultivation If this be a spirit of aggrandizement The undersigned are prepared to admit in that sense its existence But they must deny that it affords the slightest proof of an intention not to respect the boundaries between them and European nations or of a desire to encroach upon the territories of Great Britain.
1: Wow. Imagine yeah. handing that contract over to a native to sign?
0: Uh, I know, really. They were like, uh, <laughs> luckily, they didn't have to sign this one. It was only between them and Britain, so they, didn't, this is they didn't, true. didn't involve the natives. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. Now, in
1: 1764, the plan for the future management of Indian affairs was proposed by the British Board of Trade. Although never adopted formally, the plan established the imperial government's expectation that land would only be bought by colonial governments, not individuals, And that land would only be purchased at public meetings. For much of North America, the American Revolution was more of a battle against the natives than a war against the British. So when the war was brought to an end with the 1783 Treaty of Paris, the treaty was generally understood by American officials to strip the Indians east of the Mississippi River of all of their property rights. Uh, The private contracts that once characterized the sale of Indian land to various individuals and groups from farmers to towns, were replaced by treaties between sovereigns, just as they'd wanted in 1764. Now, this protocol was adopted by the United States government after the American Revolution.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is important stuff. So this is literally the country saying we're adding to our country instead of an individual saying, I need a little more space, you know, like working something out with his neighbor. That kind of creates... The whole, you know, basis for the conflict right there. It's not just, Mm -hmm. it's not two people or even, like, two groups of people talking. It's a government versus a tribe or, you know, a smaller
1: government more mandated than agreed upon exactly right?
0: yeah. yeah exactly yeah and then we get that plus manifest destiny plus the thing I rambled off before you know you see the mm-hmm. uh, the writing is on the wall even this early in, in the 19th century sure. uh, on March 11th 1824 John C Calhoun founded the office of Indian Affairs which is now known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs as a division of the United States Department of War which is now the United States Department of Defense to solve the land problem with 38 treaties with American Indians Tribes. The passage of the Indian Removal Act of 1830 marked the beginning of a U.S. federal government policy of forcibly removing native populations away from European populated areas. One example was the five civilized tribes, who were removed from their native lands in the southern United States and moved to modern-day Oklahoma in a mass migration that came to be known as the Trail of Tears. In 1851, the United States Congress passed the Indian Appropriations Act, which authorized the creation of Indian reservations in what is now Oklahoma. In 1887, Congress undertook a significant change in reservation policy by the passage of the Dawes Act, or General Allotment Severalty Act. The act ended the general policy of granting land parcels to tribes as a whole by granting small parcels of land to individual tribe members, so now they've flipped it. It's now mm-hmm. the government brokering with individuals. And, you know, uh, In some cases, for example, the Umatilla Indian Reservation, after the individual parcels were granted out of reservation land, the reservation area was reduced by giving the excess land to white settlers. So now, it seems, you know, 50 years later, settlers <laughs> and natives, they don't have to be so separated after all. Huh? They can live right up next to each other as long as we, right. uh, need, we need the room.
1: Now, by the 1830s, the West was filling up with squatters who had no legal deed, although they may have paid money to previous settlers. Lack of transportation at the American frontier would make commercial farming difficult or impossible. So most settlers committed to sustenance farming, meaning for them so they'd they'd grow crops and 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 feed livestock for themselves and their families, right. and perhaps some trading's with local settlers and uh, other natives. Real, uh, real minor
0: stuff, though. It would literally yeah give, give me give me lettuce for your potato kind of this thing. This is
1: farmers know? market. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, oh. Now, the uh, Jacksonian Democrats favored the squatters by promising rapid access to cheap land. By contrast, Henry Clay, who was the founder of the Whig Party, which would eventually become the Republicans, was alarmed at the, quote, lawless rabble heading west who were undermining the utopian concept of a law-abiding, stable, middle-class community. Now, rich Southerners uh, looked for opportunities to buy uh, high-quality land to set up slave plantations. The Free Soil Movement of the 1840s called for low-cost land for free white farmers, a position enacted into law by the New Republican Party in 1862, offering free 160-acre homesteads to all adults, male and female, black and white, native-born, or immigrant. Free soil adherents were against slavery At least partly because they didn't want Plantation owners to take all of the choicest land
0: Yeah, I found this interesting on in two ways That the Republican Party, so from the Whigs To the Republican seemed to change their mm-hmm. stance On how they wanted the West to be settled To kind of open it up sure. to uh, Way more than, you know White farmers to, you know, uh, free black uh, Slaves yeah. and immigrants too I mean, it's kind of crazy But also that this is, you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into a minefield with this, Chris. But, you know, there's, there's a huge impetus, You know, when when I was a kid, they made a big deal about the Civil War being about states' rights. And then later on you learn, well, what do you think the right was about? It was the right to hold slaves. And it's like, that is true. That was the crux of the—essentially the argument of the war, you know, what whether they can have slavery or not. But you see here, it isn't that simple. You have here members of a free-soil movement that are against slavery— Purely mm-hmm. for survival and commercial purposes, you know that. Sure. It's, and 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 it's not a it's not a moralistic decision. It it gets painted as being a moralistic decision today. But if you read a lot of the abolitionist papers of the time, it's often purely financial. They're saying it's all about the money. It's, yeah. There's a, what they're saying it's cheaper to hire uh, work than to have slaves because you have to give them. Medicine and care. Housing. housing. Yep. <clears throat> so anyway, I just want to throw that out there. I know I should never mention such subjects because I'm just opening myself up to crap. But anyway.
1: Well, we, we didn't take a position.
0: No, we didn't. <laughs> uh, to get to those rich new lands of the West Coast, there were two options. Some sailed around the southern tip of South America during a six-month voyage. But 400,000 others walked there on an overland route of more than 2,000 miles known as the Oregon Trail. And also known as a game, as a, you know. Yes. Uh, they moved in large groups under an experienced wagon master, bringing in their clothing, farm supplies, weapons, and animals. And these wagon trains followed major rivers, crossed prairies and mountains, and typically ended in Oregon and California. Pioneers generally attempted to complete the journey during a single warm season. Uh, then we go further south to talk about that, what formed that old west, Mexico became independent of Spain in 1821, took over Spain's northern possessions, uh, stretching from Texas to California. They quickly established a lucrative trade route with Kansas City, uh, Missouri, along the Santa Fe Trail. The Mexican government needed workers, and they attracted American settlers to Texas with generous terms. Stephen F. Austin, known as the father of Texas and namesake of the city of Austin, became an empresario, receiving contracts from the Mexican officials to bring in immigrants. In doing so, he also became the de facto political and military commander in the area. After an abortive attempt to establish the independent nation of Fredonia in 1826, led by another empresario named Hayden Edwards, tensions between Mexico and white settlers rose. Lieutenant Colonel William Travis, leading the War Party, advocated for independence from Mexico, while the Peace Party, led by Austin, attempted to get more autonomy within the current relationship
1: got to love those uh it's, it's exactly what it says on the tin the war
0: party exactly yeah <laughs> what we're about yep
1: when uh, Mexican President uh, Santa Ana shifted alliances and joined the conservative uh, Centralist Guard Party, he declared himself dictator and ordered soldiers into Texas to stop new immigration and to quell the Anglos. Immigration continued, however, and 30,000 Anglos with 3,000 slaves were settled in Texas by 1835. In 1836, Texas Revolution erupted. Following losses at the Alamo and Goliad, the, Tex- the Texans uh, won the decisive battle of San Jacinto uh, to secure independence. Is it Jacinto, you think?
0: I think it's Jacinto. Sure. It uh, now a, the, I think uh, it's Jacinto, just... or Jacinto, maybe. Jacinto. Maybe. Yeah.
1: San Jacinto. (laughs) Now, the U.S. Congress declined to annex Texas, uh, stalemated by contentious arguments over slavery as well as regional power. Thus, the Republic of Texas remained as an independent power for nearly a decade before it would be annexed as the 28th state in the year 1845.
0: Yeah, and that's the period a lot of these lawless stories come from, as well as the, uh, you know, remember the Alamo and things like that, but... uh... Interesting, kind of a reversal of the immigration uh, policies that would follow throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But uh, In Missouri and Illinois, animosity between the Mormon settlers and locals grew, and violence finally erupted on October 24th, 1838, when militias from both sides clashed. A mass killing of Mormons in Livingston County occurred six days later. Leader Brigham Young, seeking to leave American jurisdiction to escape religious persecution... Led the Mormons to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake, owned at that time by Mexico but not controlled by them. Uh, essentially, the even Native Americans didn't go there because it was so salty; it was useless to them. Sure. This lake they but it's like a, a lake so salty you can't even like swim, fish, or drink it or anything. A uh, hundred rural Mormon settlements sprang up in what Young uh, Brigham Young called Deseret, which he ruled as a theocracy and later became the Utah Territory and the state of Utah even.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, in 1846, about 10,000 Californios, uh, Hispanic folk, uh, lived in California, primarily on cattle ranches in what is now the Los Angeles area. With the outbreak of war with Mexico in 1846, the U.S. sent in Fremont and the U.S. Army Unit, as well as naval forces, and quickly took control. As the war was ending, gold was discovered in the var hills in the <laughs> north, and uh, word soon spread. Thousands of 49ers, so named for the peak year 1849, reached California by sailing around South America or taking a shortcut through Panama, or they walked westward. Uh, the population would soar to over two hundred thousand people in 1852, mostly in the gold districts that stretched into the mountains east of San Francisco.
0: Yeah, and this was not the only gold rush of the era. In fact, I think it was like the fifth one. Uh, mm. As as the population moved west and wherever they found gold, there was a rush. But this was arguably the uh, biggest or most interesting biggie, one, yeah, because it required people to travel such long distances to get to it. You know. The, a six-month trip around the, the uh, you know, Tierra Oh, yeah, you're Waco, risking your
2: life. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: so it, it really was uh, a crazy uh, experience for a lot of people. Now, the U.S. Army, after 1850, established a series of military posts across the frontier designed to stop warfare among Indian tribes or between Indians and settlers. Throughout the 19th century, Army officers typically served their careers in peacekeeper roles, moving from fort to fort until retirement. Actual combat experience was uncommon for any one soldier, but there were many terrible massacres committed by natives and soldiers through the years.
1: The federal government provided subsidies for the uh, development of mail and freight delivery, and by 1856, Congress authorized road improvements and an overland mail service to California. The new commercial wagon train service uh, primarily hauled freight, and a stage service was established that went from St. Louis to San Francisco in 24 days along a southern route. William Russell, hoping to get a government contract for more rapid mail delivery service, started the Pony Express. This was 1860, cutting delivery time to 10 days. He set up over 150 stations about 15 miles apart. The Pony Express ended in just 18 months, however, because it just couldn't compete with the
0: telegraph. Right, and like you could almost like see the technological advances coming just popping one out. after another. Now it's just like you know you went from wilderness to now we have a, a overland rail routes or you know wagon routes and whatever, and then uh, the telegraph. And uh, following the Civil War, federal involvement with the territories was considerable. Uh, in addition to the, in addition to the direct subsidies, the federal government maintained military posts provided safety from Indian attacks, bankrolled treaty obligations, conducted surveys and land sales, built roads, staffed land offices, made harbor improvements, and subsidized overland uh, mail delivery, as we just discussed, partially. Uh, Territorial citizens came to both decry federal power and local corruption, and at the same time, Lament that more federal dollars were not sent their way So things have not changed too much in over the years in that regard uh, Territorial governors were political appointees and beholden to Washington So they usually governed with a light hand Allowing the legislatures to deal with local issues In addition to his role as civil governor A, a ter- territorial governor was also a militia commander A local superintendent of Indian Affairs And the state liaison with federal agencies the legislatures, on the other hand, spoke for the lo- local citizens, and they were given considerable leeway by the federal government to make local law. These improvements to governance were left, sim- left plenty of room for profiteering. And as Mark Twain wrote while working for his brother, the Secretary of Nevada, uh, the government of my country snubs honest simplicity, but fondles artistic villainy, and I think I might have developed into a very capable <clears throat> pickpocket If I had remained in the public service a year or two.
1: Now, after the Civil War, many from the East Coast and Europe were lured west by reports from relatives and by extensive advertising campaigns promising, quote, the best prairie lands, also low prices and large discounts for cash, and better terms than ever. The new railroads provided the opportunity for migrants to go out and take a look with uh, special family tickets, the cost of which could be applied to land purchases offered by the railroads. It was still, however, a very rough life in America's interior, and many who cast their lots in the West did not survive. In 1889, Washington, D.C. opened 2 million acres of unoccupied lands in the Oklahoma Territory. On April 22nd, over 100,000 settlers and cattlemen, they were known as the Boomers, lined up at the border— and when the army's guns and bugles gave the signal, began a mad dash to stake their claims. A witness wrote, "'The horsemen had the best of it from the start. It was a fine race for a few minutes, but soon the riders began to spread out like a fan, and by the time they reached the horizon, they were scattered about as far as the eye could see.'" Many did not ride horses and actually ran to their new plots of land.
0: About, I'd love to see that. Like what? <laughs> That's
1: wild. <laughs> <laughs> now, in a single day, the towns of Oklahoma City, Norman, and Guthrie came into existence. In the same manner, millions of acres of additional land was opened up and settled in the following four
0: years, which led to our final topic about the Old West boom towns and why they called those cattlemen boomers in the first place. <laughs> Now, a uh, boomtown is a community that undergoes sudden and rapid population economic growth, or that started from scratch for that same reason. That growth is normally attributed to the nearby discovery of a precious resource, though there can be other contributing factors as well. Uh, there were many of these boomtowns in the American frontier, not just in the West, but throughout the interior. Some flourished, others failed, and became ghost towns. Or worse, became nothing at all, just dust on the, on the ground. And these towns often sprouted almost overnight, <clears throat> with little regulation or planning, and many were quite lawless, particularly before the Civil War. A lot of American cities got their starts as boom towns, including Beaumont, Texas for oil, Belleville, California, for it was a gold mining boom town from 1860 to 1870, Birmingham, Alabama was a coal and iron ore boom town in the 1880s.
1: Bodie, California found gold 1876 Butte, Montana had copper and other resources Caldwell, Kansas uh, Was an intercontinental railroad hub So uh, a busy place to be Central City, Colorado Found gold 1859 And Columbia, California Also found gold 1850
0: Cripple Creek, Colorado Also got the gold Deadwood, South Dakota Also gold in the 1870s Denver, Colorado also, gold, 1850, uh, Ellsworth, Kansas. It was uh, b- built up on the inter- Intercontinental Railroad. This was also called the Wickedest Cattle Town in Kansas. I don't know why, though.
1: I, w- I wonder if they had to repetition for that every year. Like Probably. If someone the, came to, to challenge. we the, the, We're the exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had Gary, Indiana, who was a uh, who found steel. Uh, Gillette, Wyoming, this is another uh, stop on the Intercontinental Railroad, 1891. Goldfield, Nevada, you'll never guess. They yep. found gold. I'm starting to think that gold isn't as rare as uh, As we might be like. Stepping
0: got it everywhere they go around right here, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worthless now. Uh,
1: <laughs> Guthrie, Oklahoma, another oil uh, oil place. Um, we have Hancock, Michigan, which is a mining town.
0: In uh, Harrisburg, Illinois, it had coal. That was actually a distribution hub for other coal mines in the area. Houghton, Michigan, uh, found copper. In Humble, Texas, they struck oil. Kilgore, Texas, was founded in 1872 because of the Intercontinental Railroad. La Paz, Arizona, is a gold mining boomtown from 1862 to
1: 1864. Leadville, Colorado, found silver. <laughs> Minneapolis, <laughs> sure. A
0: little switcheroo Minneapolis... there, I love that. You know.
1: Yes, they didn't find lead. Nope. Uh, no, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, grew due to, the, uh, due to the lumber industry, uh, 1852 to 1880. Odessa, Texas, found oil. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania found coal then steel Uh, Sacramento, California was uh, pretty much where the 1849 gold rush went
0: down That's where it kicked off, yep Uh, Seattle, Washington became a prosperous port city city during the Klondike gold rush in 1897 Also a locking boom earlier in the 19th century and is currently undergoing a technology boom
1: and there was also that whole uh, tie a flannel around your waist grunge thing.
0: I'm sure that was another kind of boom for a totally different <laughs> industry. But uh, Sioux City, Iowa, it was, it's gold in the railroad, 1849. Tombstone, Arizona was a silver boom town. Texarkana in Texas, Ar- Ar- uh, Arkansas. Oil boom, a town from 1879. Virginia City, Nevada, silver mining boom town in the 1860s. And Williston, North Dakota, known for striking oil.
1: Mm, we also have Jerk Town, that uh, that fought uh, smallpox. <laughs>
0: That's right. We <yeah. laughs> were booming in smallpox. Yeah, that. that, that <laughs> but luckily, we saw the end of that town in that, in that issue <laughs> that we just read today. Yeah.
1: Now we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the you know the the myth of the wild west here. Uh, mm-hmm. Now the uh, frontier myth or the myth of the west is one of the most influential myths in American culture. Americans and Europeans were romanticizing the frontier when it was still being explored. Even many of the original colonists regarded the natives as uh, as noble savages and somehow believed that there was a harsher truth out west. The first folk hero of the West was Daniel Boone. He lived between uh, 1734 and 1820, and he was the first white man to see what would become Kentucky. And he was also known for his trapping and hunting skills, as well as brokering deals with the Indian people.
0: Uh, Wild West shows were traveling vaudeville performances in the United States and Europe that existed around 1870 to 1920. They were arguably more popular in Europe than in America. In 1883, Buffalo Bill's Wild West was founded in North Platte, Nebraska, when Buffalo Bill Cody turned his real-life adventure into the first outdoor Western show. Over time, various Wild West shows were developed, including Beho Gray's Wild West, Texas Jack's Wild West, Pawnee Bill's Wild West, Joni Bros Buffalo Ranch Wild West And Buckskin Joe Hoyt hmm. Not Wild West For some reason uh, The 101 Ranch Wild West show featured African Americans such as Bill Pickett The famous Bulldogger and his brother Voter Hall Who billed as Fiji Indian From Africa <laughs> uh, These shows would include trick shots Lassoing horse tricks And often a stage feud between Cowboys and Indians Legends like Wild Bill, Calamity Jane, Jesse James Gang are products of this myth, and they're still present in our popular culture, as well as the books of Theodore Roosevelt, Frederick Remington, and Owen Wister, and Western films, and of course, Western comic books. But none of it is actually totally true.
1: Hmm. Now, the Wild West was very multicultural. Remember, uh, Congress had allotted land to all free men. White, black, and immigrant, uh, with people of all nationalities represented. Rock Springs in Wyoming counted as many as 56 nationalities in a population of under 10,000. So, very, very diverse. Yeah. Uh, now, Slovakians, Finns, Norwegians, Germans, Ottomans, Swedes, and Chinese all poured into the South and Midwest. Uh, an influx that only increased with the Californian Gold Rush. The image of the old West as being largely white is a Hollywood holdover from a time when casting non-white American, non-American voices and faces was uncommon.
0: Yeah, and non-white as well. You're right. You know. The, sure. You know the, the often. You know, uh, John Wayne had to play a few uh, Mexicans in his day, even or whatever. You know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in the old, in the Wild West, carrying a gun in town was likely to land you in trouble. When the local government of Dodge City was formed, the first law passed was to prohibit the carrying of firearms. The gunfight at the OK Corral kicked off because Wyatt Earp was trying to enforce that very law. Mm. Wichita and Tombstone both enacted similar laws and enforced them hard. Indeed, the second most common cause of arrest in the Old West was illegally carrying a firearm. And yes... I did search far and wide to find out what the first cause might be, but I couldn't figure it out. Something <laughs> That's with cattle rustling. Pro- something prob- horse maybe, stealing. You know that might have been it. You're right, cattle or horse stealing, or I was thinking something with prostitution. I would think, right? Something involved. <laughs> Total I don't know.
2: Possibility.
0: <laughs> uh, when you entered a frontier town, you were legally required to leave your guns at the stables on the outskirts of towns, or drop them off with the sheriff, who would give you a token in exchange for when you left.
1: Very so, interesting. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Now, the popular image of the Old West as a place where men quelled their differences by shooting each other, as you might imagine, simply isn't true. No. Uh, people were more likely to cooperate than fight, for you know obvious reasons. When you stop to think
0: about That'll it. Not enough people uh, to make a big feud over. You know, we're trying to work. Yeah, it's together like to there's make gonna be some... two guys left at exactly, the end Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, bank robberies, too, were virtually unheard of. One estimate places the number at about a dozen. For the entire frontier period So, uh, I, I also don't think They had uh, sacks with dollar signs Probably
0: on not, I'd like to imagine That they did though, but yeah, <laughs> yes. probably not
1: Now the highest annual body count That Tombstone ever experienced Was five Yeah. Hmm. Uh, from 1870 to 1885 Dodge City and Wichita Had murder rates of 0. 0.6
0: per year Yeah, so it wasn't Not lawless, not <laughs> It was not what you thought at all And believe me, I was surprised Just like you know, what I knew about the Old West was virtually nothing before this, but I knew all of the stereotypes. But to learn this, sure. like, Tombstone, five in a year, like, that's supposed to be one of the most violent Wild West, the, Old West cities. That's you know? the highest. Yeah, that was, that was the peak. I was just like, oh, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, this one's fun. In 1855, Congress assigned $30,000 for the buying and shipping of camels from Egypt. The idea was that camels would fare better in the scorching southwestern horses, making long survey missions easy, which is actually not a bad idea. By 1857, the army had 70 camels, and early experiments were looking good. Then the Civil War broke out, and predictably, a number of camels managed to escape into the wild where they bred like crazy. For nearly a 100 years, feral camels were part of Texas's wildlife. The last sighting was reported in 1941.
1: About a half hour from here, there's somebody who owns uh, two camels. Oh really? Uh, not too far from me. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they up had
0: north. They—they they came. Are they the the remnants of the uh, these old? <laughs> I, I'm
1: not sure. I oh, never, no. I never thought the knock on their door, yeah. but they've got two camels in their front yard, and it's a, it's a, it's a heck of a sight. Yeah. Uh, now the gunfight at the O.K. Corral was a shootout between a group of lawmen and members of a loosely organized group of outlaws called the Cowboys. <laughs> uh, this took place at about 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 26th, 1881, in Tombstone, Arizona territory. The lawmen were uh, Marshal Virgil Earp, Special Policeman Morgan Earp, Special Policeman Wyatt Earp, and Temporary Policeman Doc Holliday. This is one of the most sensationalized moments of the Old West, including the movie Tombstone from 1993, but it's wildly misunderstood. The shootout lasted for 30 seconds and took place in an alley behind the OK Corral.
0: Yeah, there were only three fatalities, not the 10 or more that are often claimed. Uh, I've I saw estimates that were like dozens of bodies, and which
2: <laughs> re- is
0: ridiculous <laughs> when you could think of using rifles and six shooters. Like, you know, that these guys are really loading quickly. Uh, and this is in part because two of the men involved in the shootout simply ran away. That was, they couldn't even get shot. <laughs> Wyatt and Holiday were arrested for murder. Earp lost his job as sheriff, and evidence surfaced that he probably shot his casualty in the back. While the charges were eventually dropped, many local people were pushing for conviction. At the funeral of the three men killed, 300 mourners turned out, while nearly 2,000 citizens lined the route to the uh, gravesite. It wasn't until 1931 that a book came out portraying Earp as a hero that the narrative changed. And I thought that was...
1: I'm not sure there's 300 people in Tombstone today. <laughs>
0: you know, I... You know, you <laughs> it's gotta, been a while since I've been there. You gotta, if you, uh, you know, maybe shoot some uh, three of the luminaries, you can see them come out of the woodwork <laughs> for go. the funeral. Hmm. But yeah, that was... Uh, I found that all really fascinating stuff. To Absolutely. About. Uh You know, like I say, I know such broad strokes of Western history, the old Western history, that any true fact is going to be illuminating to me because I probably know hmm. only the lies and or knew them. Before this, but uh, this was our opportunity to give it a shot. See how we see how we like to feel those spurs, right? Mm -hmm. That ten gallon hat, yeah. Uh, And we probably will dip into Western comics more in the future. Talk more about other aspects. Talk about the comics and stuff. Maybe possibly uh, the the actual wide line. (laughs) But uh, if you want to do it, write to us. Talk to us about Western comics or this issue of Weird Western Tales or Jonah Hex or. Anything that's on your mind, you can write to us at History at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History.
1: You can find us on Tumblr, cosmictmillhistory.tumblr.com, but uh, I'm not sure uh, that's updated uh, like ever.
0: I think it doesn't have, the, have the automatic thing. I don't know. Maybe. Does it? Oh, hopefully. Uh, I, I, <laughs> that's all, there's not much happening there, folks, but if that's one place you can find us. Uh, also on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. Reggie.
1: I'm at Ace Comics.
0: Find our weekly writings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and find Chris's daily writings at his personal blog. Chris is on where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week. Now coming down to the uh, final issues of your Action Comics run. You reviewed mm-hmm. some the other day that I loved. I couldn't remember. Uh... What was it? Oh, was oh you did the you did the Kryptonite Nevermore Cadets oh, yes, issue, oh, which yeah. was a weird, which is a strange one, but uh, it's really been a blast over there. You gotta check it out. Uh, you know, you've just been going all over the place. You did the Terrifics recently. Was it today? Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, every day, new DC comic. <laughs> he reviews it. Got great commentary. He got the ads, pictures from the book. It's the next best thing to write to reading the comic itself.
1: And this Monday is number eight hundred. So uh, that's, a, that's a biggie, but uh, I, I, I don't know it's going to be that biggie. Uh, <laughs> you can check out our show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where we are uh, uploading all of our show notes for Weird Comics History, the Cosmic Treadmill, also doing some box sets to reorganize things, make it a little right. bit easier to find.
0: It's also where you can uh, find a chronological ordering of our shows, too, which I know is something yes. useful to people that want, want such a thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Instead of digging through the Podbean or iTunes or Spotify, archives where everything is just in the order we uploaded yeah we wish we didn't quite do the right way (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you can uh, find us on youtube uh, search weird comics history all one word and uh you can actually see a video of the most exciting video you're ever going to see of me opening a copy of wizard magazine that's up there right now
0: because Unbagging yeah, an unbagging, unbagging video. Unbagging. Whoa! Look at that, Indeed. folks. We're
1: we're we're all for the trends here, and uh, I unbagged it because it came with an AOL disk that promised a free poster. Wow! And, and you can find out what that free poster is right now on YouTube.
0: So go over to YouTube, and maybe if you're good, he'll give you. He'll let you uh, load the uh, AOL disk into your computer. I'll, you I'll, I'll send
1: it. Yeah, we'll. we'll this will be. We'll, we'll. I'll send it to you. You'll oh, sign on it. Good. We'll send it off. We'll. We'll have some uh, awesome merchandise
0: Let me tell you something, when uh, the human race uh, <laughs> Dies out And you know, many millions of years later The uh, aliens or future generations Sift through, all they're going to find is AOL Discs, <laughs> <in> Bed <laughs> Bath & Beyond Coupons, I'm telling you, that's, that's all we're Making now So, so <laughs> many of it. those uh, Those AOL discs were so ubiquitous at one point It was like you, you really could have built the house With them Oh certainly but uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for her?
2: No, that'll do it.
0: Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill. Honorably, partner.
2: Yeehaw! You're a tired little cowboy.
0: Your eyes are half closed.
2: Let's put those six guns away. You've been riding all day. You ki That old stick horse you're right, He's plumb took her down But he stayed with you all the way Let's give him some hay